O God, in whose service is perfect freedom, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Two men went up to the temple to pray. The first man was a good man, honest, successful, with just the sweetest wife and two bright kids who were strictly rationed on the time spent in front of screens and a dog who was walked every morning. A believer of the faithful sort, pledge time came and he was never late. He observed the fasts and feasts, volunteered his time. He never said an insulting word about anyone. The second man was a bad man. He's a crooked accountant, doing other people's taxes and inflating them enough to take some off the top for himself. And everyone knows it. Or everyone assumes it, whether or not it's true, a job like that. His children are unpopular in school. They're picked on by the kids who have heard their parents talk about this man. Kids who haven't yet learned the layered intricacies of human cruelty and polite society like their parents. The good man looks around him and makes a prayer to God, which Jesus overhears. And all he does is tell the truth. Thank you, God. That I'm not like these others. He had read the paper that morning like he did every morning, and it was fresh on his mind. Thank God I'm not like all of these others, all the thieves and the swindlers and the adulterers, and there's that tax collector in the next pew. How do they live with themselves? Ah, but there for the grace of God go I. Thank you, God. I'm not like that. The bad man looked down hollowly, hopelessly, beat his chest and prayed, God have mercy on me, a sinner. That was the man, Jesus said, who went home justified. Justified, it's a term that we don't use uh, in everyday conversation, really. When you come across the term in scripture, it means something like being in the docket in a court of law and found not guilty, beyond all expectation. Two men were on the docket in Jesus' story. The bad man was cleared, justified. And I want to know, when I read this story, uh, did it matter? Like, did this have some tangible result in the bad man's life? Did the bad man's kids know he went home justified? Did he make amends? Did he quit his job? Or did he just get a little more honest uh, while still continuing to work on behalf of the Roman Empire, the oppressive system that dehumanized and degraded his neighbors? I want to know what happens next. This story makes me think of the endless number of church services I used to sit through where bad men cried and repented and beat their breasts and got saved and went home and continued to abuse the people around them. But this moment of turning 
to God and asking for mercy was the one you were supposed to go back to, to say, I was a bad man, and that day I beat my breast and made a decision to be a good man. But it never really seems to work out that way. There was a famous evangelist who said that the best thing that could happen after one of these uh, revival meetings is for that person uh, who had repented uh, to go outside and uh, be promptly hit by a truck and die right there, saved and purified, before the fire could die out in the torrential downpour of a world running on the satiation of self and before they could go back to the destructive patterns of behavior just natural to the person who was in them. The reformers uh, love this story. It's case in point at how we are totally justified only by God's grace and through no effort of our own. Witness humankind's total depravity compared to a fairly faithful effort, and it's the repentant heart who has a chance. Our righteousness as good people ourselves, uh, in the relative scope of the righteousness of God, uh, we are about equal to both Mother Teresa and Hitler on this scale. I like this depravity. It's a concept I can get behind. When I consider the waywardness of my own heart that does not yield to my varied and elaborate disciplines and still does what I wish and will it not to do, well, I extrapolate that data to the whole world, and I find myself right at home with Calvin and Luther, breastfeeding over the state of my soul and humanities. Check. Like, just look at the newspaper, watch the highlights of the latest debate, and you think, what has happened to people? But there, there it is. Did you hear that? What I just said? Because it sounds so natural, this comparison. I think it's impossible to avoid comparison. It's a natural pattern given to us in our evolution. Our world runs on it. Here are two candidates. Judge between them. Score above a certain number of your colleagues and have these sorts of opportunities in life. I met a baby uh, in the 99th percentile of size this last week. We compare anything and everything. And this urge to compare, to judge, to size up, it's what makes our world run, right? The candidates aren't the same. Some people are not meant for engineering school. Some babies shouldn't encourage dreams of someday becoming a famous horse jockey. That's how it goes. It's with us, and there's no changing it. What Jesus is saying is really nothing about moral morality or depravity, but that comparison, this natural thing to us, starts to eat away at our humanity. It has done this to the Pharisee, the good man. Notice what he says. I'm not like these other people. I do these things. 
This isn't a healthy definition of self. It's a definition first from negativity. I am not this. I am not that. Um, And then it's a definition from function. I do these things. Not I am. There's no core. And I think that's the key to this reading. Not the rest of the tax collector's story, after all. Me and the reformers, we get too stuck on making religion a comparison against the moral failings of our day, defining ourselves against the things that have come before us, are around us, even our past selves, the works righteousness. The rest of the bad man's story doesn't matter because what he does in that moment is the point. He is honest, making no excuses. He begins the path of descent and self-emptying that Jesus models. Richard Rohr writes this about the path of descent. Jesus clearly taught the 12 disciples about surrender, the necessity of suffering, humility, servant leadership, and nonviolence. They resisted him every time. And so he finally had to make the journey himself and tell them, follow me. But Christians have preferred to hear something Jesus never said. Worship me. Worship of Jesus is rather harmless and risk-free. Following Jesus changes everything. He says they resisted him every time. So he finally had to make the journey himself. And along the way, Jesus noticed people living out this path of humility. Here's a good man and a bad man. And it's only the bad whose placement and choices in life have made comparisons impossible. One of them worships God. And the other starts to follow God's footsteps.